People of God in Christ, we are dealing in this sermon series with difficulties in the Psalms, um, Psalms that we sing, and uh, it had to come to this, right? Uh, How do we sing, as we quite often do, as we have tonight in both the first and the second Psalm that we've, the Psalm setting that we've sung, uh, how do we sing about temple sacrifices? On one hand, what do you mean how? Uh, we, we just do. We, we sing the words that are written in uh, the particular psalm that we are singing. But by asking how, the question goes deeper. What should we mean when we sing in the psalms about temple sacrifices? Singing the psalms at all is out of date, some 50 years perhaps or more. But singing in the Psalms about animal sacrifices is thousands of years out of date. Sometimes the references are rather general, like in Psalm 5, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In cases like these, I think we can translate, as we talked about last, last week, we can translate to the New Covenant Christian life by by taking such words to mean the the attitude of self-sacrifice before the Lord. The Apostle Paul even writes in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. At other times, however, the reference to sacrifice is is so clearly made to the temple sacrifices that it's much harder to translate and apply the reference to ourselves. A good example here is Psalm 66, verse 15, which says, I will offer to you burnt offerings, uh, burnt offerings of fattened animals, with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. And Psalm 118 says, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So it's hard, and then sometimes it gets harder still. So that one approach is is to just sing through, to sing past such references without much concern, so that we can benefit from singing the rest of the psalm. But especially like with Psalm 66, if we are declaring what we will do, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals, or if we are calling upon others to bind and bring the ill-fated animal to the altar, like in Psalm 118, well, then we really ought to know what we are singing and why we are singing it. So to gain some clarity on this aspect of our psalm singing, let's look this evening at Psalm 51, because here is another psalm that gives bold, unambiguous reference to temple sacrifices, and it does so in the last two verses. Verses 18 and 19 read, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. These two verses, in addition to the verses leading up to them, can help us understand the purpose 
of temple sacrifices under the Old Covenant, and thus the role that animal sacrifice played in temple worship. And when we understand the purpose and role of the temple sacrifices, I think we will be able to sing such references with greater meaning in our worship of God. So point number one is the ministry of temple sacrifices. In short, why did God command his people to bring an offering and come into his courts, as we hear in Psalm 96, verse 8? If we ask why did Israel bring animal sacrifices, we can easily answer that it was because God commanded it. Then it's worth noting how central, how essential, how how carefully regulated by God was animal sacrifice in temple worship. But the real question, of course, is why did God command it? And we might begin to answer by first making clear the wrong reason. It wasn't because God needed to be fed by the animal sacrifices. We can drop back one psalm from Psalm 51 to Psalm 50 to hear God rebuking his people for such a wrong and and really even blasphemous understanding of the sacrifices that they were bringing to God. God confronts his people with these words, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Instead, God is rebuking his people for bringing sacrifices for the wrong reason, with a wrong understanding of why God commanded them. First, God rebuked them for thinking to give him something that he didn't already own. Think here again, we've used this example before, of, uh, of the young man who uh, uh, is visiting uh, the young lady that he, that he likes, and uh, he wants to bring her flowers, so he visits her flower bed before knocking on the door and hands to her her very own flowers as if they were from him. This was a mistake that Israel was making in their offering of sacrifices, as if they had something to give to God that did not already belong to him. God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Second, they were thinking somehow to feed God. So that God said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So Israel was commanded by God to to bring animal sacrifice, not to give something to God that he needs from them, and certainly not to feed him. We said last week that this was the thinking and uh, the thinking of the nations around Israel in their pagan religion. So I guess it makes sense that Israel would fall into such wrong thinking. There was that influence there upon them. But it doesn't make sense when we understand that God had clearly revealed himself to his people as being other than, as being holy, as being other than all the other gods of the nations around them. So beware the idolatry of a needy God. If we think God has any needs at all, we are not thinking of the one true God 
who is sovereign, self-existent, and all-powerful in his being and character. And so we must understand why God commanded animal sacrifice, that it wasn't because of any need that he had, but exactly because of what his people needed. They needed to be taught, reminded, each time they brought an animal to the temple, first, that God is holy and just. You cannot come before God casually. You cannot just pay God a visit. Think even of the, the structure of the temple and, and, uh, um, and, and remember that it was designed by God himself. Uh, uh, the people could only come into the outer courts of the temple and never into the holy of holies or the most holy place, which was the, uh, the place of God's immediate presence. And as the people came, there was the altar standing between them and the holy of holies. And there an animal was, was slain. Its, its throat was cut. The blood gushed forth. And uh, the blood of the sacrifice was even, uh, by God's instruction, made more visible uh, as it was thrown against the sides of the altar before the animal was prepared and, and burnt to ashes on the altar of the fire. Again, all according to the careful instructions of God. It was all very graphic. Again, by God's own design, in order to convey to the people the holiness and justice of God, His holiness in that He will not be casually approached. His justice in that the wages of sin is death. But even more, the temple sacrifices make it clear that, uh, make it clear to God's people that He is a God of grace, in that He accepts the sacrifice of the animal in the place of His sinful people. That's grace. And notice how the same thing is true for us of the cross of our Savior Jesus. The cross is not just about the love of God. It, it shows, in fact, the gracious love of God or the loving grace of God. And the grace of God is not opposed to his justice. In fact, the first thing to see in the cross of Christ is the holiness and the justice of God. But as God himself provides the substitute in the person of his own son, even as Christ satisfies the just judgment of God for our sin, so the grace of God is extended to us. To put it another way, God deals with his son according to his justice so that he might deal with us according to his grace. So as we consider the temple sacrifices, uh, as we sing psalms that give clear reference to animal sacrifice at the temple, we must understand those sacrifices rightly. We must understand them in the way that Israel of old was supposed to understand them. And as those sacrifices were also to make Israel look forward to that, that final sacrifice of Christ, so they should cause us to, in a sense, look back to Christ and His cross. 
let us be thankful and joyful that we don't have to worship God in that old way of animal sacrifice. However, let us be careful not to think that God has changed from Old Testament to New. It's a mistake that is often made. Uh, There was even one infamous heretic in history by the name of Marcion who believed and taught that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. Others, however, simply understand uh, either that God changed uh, or that he changed his mind on his plan of salvation. Therefore, while under the Old Covenant, the people themselves provided uh, obedience and sacrifice in order to be right with God, so by the New Covenant, God, uh, God Himself provides obedience and sacrifice in Christ. What we need to see, therefore, is what we call the continuity between uh, the Old and New Covenants. Uh, this is the second point, and this by way of uh, or and this way of reading scripture, this hermeneutic, as we as we say, using the theological language, uh, it's what you are hearing when we when we preach from the Old Testament. Instead of just drawing uh, moralistic lessons from the lives of Old Testament characters, instead we hear in the Old Testament as we so recently came through Genesis, even from the beginning, we hear of Christ. Without a doubt, there is much discontinuity between Old and New Testaments. Perhaps the best and certainly the most immediate example is the temple sacrifices, which we no longer bring to God in our worship of Him. That's very clear discontinuity. But neither can we worship God in that way that He prescribed for Israel of old, because it requires a temple and an altar, which we do not have. Someone might say, well, let's, let's build a temple and an altar. But in order to do it right, we would even have to be in Jerusalem. And we would have to go out and try to find someone who we know is a descendant of Levi in order to serve as the priest, and another to serve as the high priest, and, and more than that, even to serve as the temple servants. So there obviously is much discontinuity between old and new, but the continuity, what continues, is found firstly in the character of God as unchangeable. His immutability, as we say. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But second, the continuity between old and new is even taught us in the fact that we first hear, uh, in the fact that we first hear the gospel in the very Garden of Eden, and in the fact that God established his covenant of grace long before Moses long before Mount Sinai, long before the Ten Commandments. The Apostle Paul uh, put it this way in Galatians 3, verse 17. This, This is what I mean, he writes. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is, after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
And this Paul writes to clarify that Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham. The coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the cov- of the um, of, of the covenant um, with Abraham. Thus, we we hear Jesus Himself speaking of a new covenant, and yet we understand that this new covenant is is not different and other than the old but is the grand and glorious fulfillment of God's promises throughout Scripture. Paul even writes in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why, he says, it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. So on this basis, it would be wrong for us to to keep offering animal sacrifice, but it would also be wrong to forget all about those sacrifices. The picture of them that we are given in the Psalms are are graphic pictures, and they teach us that God is holy, that He is the just punisher of sin, but that He is gracious to accept the substitute in our place. And it's not that He said to his people of old, Oh, all right, I guess it can be done that way. I will accept the sacrifice in your place. No, it was his own plan. His own commands were being carried out as Israel brought an offering in order to come into his courts. And so so Israel of old had to struggle to hang on to this as well. That the point was not just payment for sin, but the teaching of God of both sin and grace. A third point is the broken spirit and contrite heart. In other words, we're not, you know, the the idea of Israel here was not that, that, you know, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to as long as they brought the sacrifice. No, God's point in having them bring the animal sacrifice is that he would create in that way within them a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And this, of course, brings us back to Psalm 51, because David writes in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here David is acknowledging that although God commanded the sacrifice, yet it wasn't because God had some strange love of violence and death. He is not pleased with a burnt offering for the sake of an uh, animal being slaughtered and burned to ashes on the altar. No, the sacrifices of God, says, says verse 17, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. <clears throat> In other words, the point is that Israel would be taught the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, and the grace of God to accept the substitute. Despite the gore of the sacrifice, the most significant moment, perhaps, was when the priest would say to the person making the offering, you may go, you you may go your way in the forgiveness of God. The animal had taken the place of the sinner, under the just punishment of God. 
So how do you, how do you walk away from watching uh, an animal die and, and burned in your place? Well, if you truly understand it and, and feel it, you go away with a, a broken and contrite heart. You go away thankful for God that He accepted the sacrifice in your place. And, and, and so you go wanting all the more to live a life of obedience to God, grieving your sin and, and praying to God, do not let my heart incline to any evil. Not because you think the next time it will be you on the altar, but because you see that God, the God who is holy and the God who is just, is also the God who is gracious toward you and always will be. The same is true for us. We don't bring animal sacrifice, but each Lord's Day in our worship and and each day in our personal worship, uh, we revisit the cross of our Savior. So, So there's the continuity that just as Israel was commanded to bring regular, even daily sacrifice, so so we are wise to make regular visits to the cross. Do you do this? Do you contemplate? Do you meditate upon the cross each and every day? But here's the blessed discontinuity that we don't have to go to a temple. Uh, We don't even have to come to this building. Um, We don't have to be in Jerusalem. As Jesus said in John 4, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. And what is the truth? But that God is the same God today as He was to Israel of old. He is holy, He is just, and He is gracious toward us in Jesus Christ. So finally, what we might say, the the thankful life of a believer in verse 18 of Psalm 51, David arrives at this prayer, this petition to God, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The point of David has not been that sacrifices should not be offered. The point instead is that they be offered with a broken and contrite spirit. And even for, even for, so with a broken and contrite heart or spirit, but even for a broken and contrite heart. David calls upon God to bless his people, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, which is to say to establish a, a, to establish and maintain and, and, and grow the faith of his people. Why? So that right sacrifices are offered. Not to feed God, not to meet some need that God has, not to trade blessings with him. The right sacrifice is the sacrifice offered with and for a broken and contrite heart. There is some debate about what David means by a whole burnt offering. Uh, Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. But as whole burnt offerings is coupled with right sacrifices, David would seem to be saying the same thing that it's one thing to bring the burnt offering, 
It's another to bring it rightly, to make it whole by the way you are offering it. Again, the same is true for us. It's, it's one thing to pray. It's quite another to pray truly in Jesus' name as our sacrifice. It's one thing to be in church, to worship God. It's quite another to be here with a broken and contrite heart, to be here filled with fear as you approach a holy and just God, and yet with joy and thankfulness for the safe approach that has been granted you by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In conclusion, not only can we sing of the temple sacrifices, we really should sing of them. It makes sense that God has given the church the songs we are to sing to him, even songs about temple sacrifices, because the same lessons that were taught to Israel are taught to us in song. Did you know that when we sing to each other, we are teaching each other? Paul writes, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How's that going to happen? By teaching and admonishing one another. And in what way? By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The word of Christ comes to dwell in us richly. And, uh, and we even teach and admonish each other in wisdom as we sing together. And what are we teaching as we sing of animal sacrifices upon that ancient altar, altar of God? Again, that God is holy, that as sinners we cannot approach Him unless atonement be made for our sin. Remember Adam and Eve, how when they sinned, they, they hid from God. They were naked and ashamed. They were terrified of their Maker. Remember Isaiah, when he uh, was given to see the Lord high and lifted up, he knew he was ruined until the Lord himself on the spot made atonement for Isaiah's sin. When Peter saw his first miracle done by Jesus, he fell down in fear and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The temple sacrifices teach the same thing, whether to Israel or to us, that God is holy and the just punisher of sin, but also that He is the gracious God who saves His people in Christ. Amen. Let's uh, bow in prayer together. Grant us, O Lord, understanding of those ancient sacrifices in the temple that you commanded, that your people uh, carried out. Often they did so for the wrong reason, misunderstanding, following the, the thinking, the religious practice of the nations around them. We thank you, O Lord, that even in our day we can sing of those temple sacrifices that we too might be kept from any idolatry of making of you to be the God you are not. But, O Lord, by way of those sacrifices and ultimately 
by way of the sacrifice of Christ himself on the cross. May we see that indeed you are holy, you are just, and you are gracious in Christ even to provide in the person of your own Son the once-for-all sacrifice that would forever deliver us from your judgment for sin. Give us this assurance, O Lord, that as we look to Christ, indeed, we are forgiven. And that you love us and that you uh, have given us your Spirit to work within us, to maintain our faith, to deepen our knowledge, to grow us day by day, and to make us sure that in that great day when Christ returns, He will return for us and not against us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.